Hey, you, Prime members, you can listen to Three Little Words ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This podcast is brought to you by Quorn, the nation's favourite meat-free brand. Quorn is a great partner for this show because their products have been in our house for years because I'm a vegetarian, so it's always in my fridge. So for every podcast, Tony gives us a Quorn fact. I do, John. Uh, As I like to call them, a quact. And this week's quact is Quorn is a super protein. It's high in fibre, low in saturated fat, and contains no cholesterol whatsoever. So if you're looking for cholesterol, yeah, this is wrong place. So if you're going vegan, vegetarian, or just cutting down on meat a bit, you'll find that Quorn is a great option because they've got so many different products from cocktail sausages to turkey style kebab. There's something for everyone. Hello and welcome to Three Little Words. I'm John Bishop. I'm here with Tony Pitts, my co-creator and co-host in this. This is a show where we ask a guest to come along, bring three words that might reveal something about themselves and may well lead into a wider conversation. They may be words that bring back nice memories, sensitive words. We don't know. We've had a great journey doing this with our guests to date. One thing I am going to say is no show will be like this one because our guest is not in the room with us. He's elsewhere. He's also hot, and because he's hot, he's took his shirt off, and that has put on us an imperative to make him feel comfortable. So we've took our shirts off, so there are now three middle-aged tattooed men, naked, looking at each other, who are going to talk about three little words. Welcome to our guest of the day, Robbie Williams. Hi guys, great to be with you. I'm looking forward to sharing my words and my stories and hopefully giving some wisdom and in turn receiving some of your guys' wisdom too. That was nice. It was beautiful. That, that Concise. Was, I think we should just the end the show there because that's... That Do you was think there'll come a point, Robbie and John, that we're not going to be crippled by self-consciousness? Your plethora of tattoos are absolutely incredible and should be out on display a lot more than they actually are. Thank you very much. I'm loving the Damien Hirst kind of thing. Is that a Damien Hirst? Yeah, it's a Damien Hirst, yeah, yeah. It's about to become... uh, Do you know the Red Balloon, the film? Yes. Uh, uh, Okay, so it's about to be incorporated into a a bigger piece. But my my tattoos, you can't see it, are uh, Sailor Jerry inspired inspired from the... 40s and 50s. Can I just say, as well, yours aren't very good, John. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? What's going on with your right arm? (laughs) My right arm? Yeah. 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 My right arm, within that, I had a little sort of tribal thing going on, and and I put the lads' initials in it, me three lads, so it's JLD, so I put Joe, Luke and Daniel. That's that bit. There's another bit there that says Veritas, which is for honesty, and then I've got a really shit tattoo, which got done by a fellow called Tattoo Jack in Tubrook in oh, Liverpool. Oh, this one's the really shit tattoo. Yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, but can I just say the difference between me and my tattoos and you, Robbie, and you, Tony, is that yous were already 
artists, performers, and all the rest of it. So tattoos seems to have been something you planned, etc. Whereas I've bundled into places and gone, I'll have that one. No, I think it's the rubbing out of a natural aesthetic. That's what I did with this lion. My lion was the um, the the first one where I went, I'll have that one off the wall. But I've just figured out something to do if somebody disses your tattoos. What? You instantly make up a relative that's dead and you tell them, you guilt them by going, oh, that's my, that's my Auntie Vera. Yeah. She, she, wow. she died. She fell off a cliff. And Lizard. she really loves lions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Shed, shed, so yeah. you just, yeah. yeah. But here's, here's what I'm going to do. Just a bit of tattoo talk. My memory, I'm numerically dyslexic. I can't add or subtract. And I can't even remember, like our house in Los Angeles has got four digits for the start of the address. And I can't rem ever remember what those digits are. So I always get in trouble because I don't know my kids' birth dates and I don't know our anniversary and I don't know my wife's birthday. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get them all tattooed, all of those dates, so I know them. I like and that have film, them. Memento. Yes, exactly, because every day is like memento to me. Another one is, I've got this one here. It's a teddy. You can't see it, but yeah, there's a teddy there it. for my daughter, Theodora. Yes. And yeah. I'm going to get one for Charlie, and it's going to be a rolled-up banknote. <laughs> <Just there. laughs> Have you got any script? I just I've got uh, some scripts on me as well. Have you, uh, is it all imagery, or have you got some scripts as well? I've got no script, but I've got... Um, I've got Archangel Michael's magic seal, his sigil there, because yes. I'm I'm a big fan of Archangel Michael. Does Michael the saint of high places, of hills? I think. I think no, I'll... no, no, no. He's like God's right hand man. He's like the big dude with the sword. Yeah, man. Is but he? I, yeah, I think... Is he in charge of mountains? I think he's got the hill brief. Has I'm he got sure the hill brief? If, you, if, if there's a Saint Michael's, I think they're usually built on hill. Might be wrong. Soon, soon. That's a tough brief to have. Yes. I would prefer to have disco I'd have, gone, I'd have gone for discos and valleys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now discos, I, discos and burger vans. Yes. Now, I have to say, I do feel... It's taking like, a turn, like, hasn't it, John? I, I do, I do yeah. feel like I've been slightly bullied, but I, am, I, I, I accept the need. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. To, to more artistically cover me body than, than what's been done at the moment. And you know what I feel like looking at you two? I've walked into the wrong prison cell. <laughs> or, the, or the right one. Yeah. So, listen, Robbie, we, we asked you for three words. I don't know the words. I know that Tony does in advance. So, let, let's, because I, I know you've, you're limited for time because you've got to finish getting dressed. So, Robbie, your first word, please. My first word is embarrassment. Mm. Embarrassment? Yeah. Right, okay. okay. Tony, so explain. what happens now, Robbie, is quick look at the etymology of the word and its usage and maybe a few quotes. So, originating from the 1670s, defined as being a state of being impeded or obstructed or entangled. And then by 1774, that had mutated to a mental state of unease. 
And then the meaning of things which embarrass us comes in 1729. And knowing that embarrass means a blockage, you can easily break it down into its two components, which are M and bar. So how does exactly a word that means blockage come to have a sense of shame associated with it? Well, embarrassment comes from uh, English. It was always applied to financial situations where people said they were embarrassed because they didn't have enough money. And this, there's an interesting distinction with another word that I know you've picked later on. Very revealing sentence, I think. I think that embarrassment involves a focus on the self presented to an audience rather than the entire self. Well, that's incredible, especially that last sentence. And, and one of the first sentences was the word entangled was used. And unwittingly, my story revolves around me unwittingly becoming entangled into an international incident. Fantastic. No. Yeah. So my story starts... And it'll probably give the game away by the first couple of sentences. I was doing a gig in Germany where Hitler did a lot of his speeches from. Popular venue, I believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nuremberg. Yeah. Nuremberg. Yeah. And where I was stood entertaining back during the war, behind me would have been the Big Eagle, you know. Yeah. Yes. Here I am on stage looking out to an audience of 80,000 people, them enraptured about the entertainment that I'm giving them, and me enraptured with them enjoying me. Simpatico, you might say. Mm. Now, I don't know about you, lads, but if you're on stage and you've got your patter down, do you have an interior dialogue going at the same time? Yeah. Yes, invariably, which comes into the fore and then drops away, I think. But I think you're, there's always a part of the, that interior dialogue that's observing you in the moment, right? Yeah. Well, the reason why I speak so slowly is because I am 95% interior dialogue the thoughts are quicker than the words, and you try to auto-correct yourself before yeah. they come out, yes. yeah. and sometimes you don't quite manage it. And if you were working in an office, maybe you would say something off-colour, and it would blot your copybook, but you'd go about your day, and then you'd remember that time that Brian said that thing two years later. If he then said something similar you would be getting a profile on this person. Yes. I mean, John, you're, you're known for sort of like slow enunciation. Exactly, Robbie. Slow enunciation. Part of it is because I kind of learned to speak properly to a group. And I, I, I used to go to America coaching kids when I was at college. And so they didn't, they'd never heard my accent. So I learned to slow it down. Part of it is the structure of speech with the Liverpool accent. And you can go into all kinds of reasons why that might be the case. But also part of it is from a stand-up point of view on the stage. It's the stand-up is the magic of one word. You finish a word and people laugh. And you want to build that up for that moment. So part of it on stage, at least I think, comes from that. It's just like suspense. Yeah. I, I would say that, Robbie, I suspect that we're similar in that I never just convey what I'm feeling. I'd never just say, uh, tell a story where I had a cup of tea. I would, the thoughts spill out and it, half of it is a commentary on the words that I'm actually saying. 
and how it's been received and heading off any potential misrepresentation by saying, I don't mean that cup of tea, it's exhausting for the listener and myself. I kind of look as though, because I don't talk a lot, apart from when I'm doing things like this or I'm on the television, I kind of look as though there's nothing going on. But in my head... I'm really, yeah. really busy. Yeah, a tsunami. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a no, tsunami. I, I've always, I've always had that about you. I've always thought that you're a head, you've got a head full of bees. There's yeah. always something happening. Seriously. Yeah. But also, I don't know. I don't know if you feel the same. Sometimes the inner dialogue, if you are tired or you haven't had enough water, and if you do that for like a couple of days sometimes you can feel yourself as like, oh, is this, am I going into madness? Mm. Oh, constantly. Well, when when you're you're in that mode of touring and you're on the road and all of that stuff and and you're talking about this this moment uh, of being on a stage in front of thousands of people and then realising you're on a stage in front of tens of thousands of people, I can so relate to that. Well, look, look. Let me just, I'll tell you the story. So I'm on stage in Nuremberg. The inner dialogue is going strong. And, you know, a lot of the time I'm on stage, I'm, I'm thinking two steps or three steps ahead of myself. Make this shape, do that face. Singing key. What's that lyric? Oh, you got it right. Oh, what's the melody? Now present yourself this way. And then I think, oh, I've got that comedic bit coming up that gets a laugh. I really enjoy that bit. That's coming soon. I'm going to go over here. And now I'm go- and then what should I have when I get back to the? I'll have a cheese and Branston toasty. That's what I'll have. <laughs> yeah. I'll have a cheese and Branston toasty. <laughs> and maybe actually, no, because of the carbs. And then off I go, right? And that, that's the interior dialogue. This particular night, I was obviously thinking about Germany, and I was obviously thinking about Hitler. No, and my, no, 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 Robbie. Robbie. Yeah, no. I can, I can guarantee you, the cringe that you've just felt. Nowhere near big enough. Nearly big enough. Mm. Nearly big enough. But you're right. So this was the dialogue that went on in my head as I'm singing "Strong," for example. You think I'm strong, right? Look at these lot. Look at these lot looking at me. Beaming back, me beaming back to them. <laughs> Did you know that I was brought up in a household where my granddad and my grandma went to war with these lot? <laughs> and now, I honestly, I um, I was led to believe that they were bad people, but from a soul to soul perspective, looking in their eyes and they're looking in my eyes, and the joy that we're creating between the two of us, this is. This is amazing. My my grandma used to have a pot under the bed that she'd pee in and she'd call it a jerry after the Germans in the war. They'd bring the jerry up to bed and that's what I'd pee in. And then I thought to myself, after this song ends, I'm going to sing something to them to let them know I'm on their side. Song ends. I sing. Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber alles. I didn't know that that wasn't the national anthem and I didn't know that that was like the national anthem during the war. I thought that was still the national anthem. Wow. 80,000 people booed me. No. 
80,000 people went, boo! How did you recover? Angels. I'm going to try that the next time I commit a gaffe. I can't imagine I'll be doing one in that scenario, but I will try Angels. Imagine my wife sort of walking in on me while I was just like yeah. having a, an extra yeah. marital yeah. affair. And let me just turn around and go. Oh, oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, having that in your pocket is such a dream. What, what yeah. a brilliant, brilliant story. So, so I, get, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. That's where embarrassment... Yeah, it's beautiful. I've just found a sentence here actually about embarrassment. It's a sense of fluster and mortification that results when the self is elevated negatively because of one has committed or anticipates committing an awkward gaffe before an audience. I'd say that was the definitive, <laughs> definitive explanation of the word embarrassment and I doubt that that will be topped. That kind of overtook my life for many, many years, that sort of sense of embarrassment and awkwardness in social situations where I was kind of paralyzed by it. Not because I thought I was going to cause an international incident, just that I didn't have the map where conversations should go. You know, I'd be talking to John at Soccer Aid and we'd get on really well because, like, he'd be like a safe lily pad to jump to. And when I'm surrounded by a lot of people, I then turn to somebody else and I'm like, I don't... In my, my insides are going, don't know how to talk to you. Mm, yes. And I'm like, I'm just trying to stay really calm while my head is suffering with this nervous embarrassment. But can I just ask you something, Robbie, because having entered your realm via Soccer Aid and got to know you, and again, I'm like most people in your life. I knew you or knew of you before I met you. And, and because you became famous in your formative years, you were still very much learning who you were as a person. Do you think this sense of of the the social structure of how to deal with people and the sense of embarrassment comes from you, you walk into a room knowing there's an expectation about you and feeling you've got to live up to that expectation or you'll feel embarrassed by the fact that you're not who they expect you to be. Well, I think that's maybe the case because when I, I'm in America a lot, I don't live in America. I live in the UK, but I spend a lot of time in America. And I didn't sort of suffer that same sort of thing with American people. So maybe that is the case. But I do know this. I got through my drugs tokens and my booze tokens very, very quickly because of the financial situation that I found myself in. I also do know that drink and drugs were filling in all of the blanks. They were actually giving me personality and they were numbing that sense of fear. And when I got sober, I was sort of stripped of this medication that I was taking to combat everyday scenarios. But I, I would have hoped that it wouldn't have taken so long to actually come to terms with it, get to grips with it, and overcome it and overpower it. It's not until now, as a 46-year-old, I would say things turned the corner when I was 44, 45, 46. Like with Soccer Aid, for example, I used to get literally ill about thinking about going to it, 
a month before, five weeks before, because I knew that I was going to be surrounded by, by people. And I was just a bit of a deer in the headlights. Thankfully, it's gone now. But that that is all to do with awkwardness and embarrassment. Yes. You know, uh, I was going to say, Rob, I'm 58. And I still and I consider myself gauche and awkward around people. And my best guess at it is that there's the hell is other people. But I'm I've never really got over the idea of being alive. It's extraordinary. Then with other human beings, there's a kind of giddiness sets up in me. And I like you went towards uh, the drugs and the drink as a as a hiding place essentially, and that hiding place very quickly became a prison. Mm-hmm. but one that I think I needed to visit to recalibrate. Yeah, absolutely. The recalibration. I don't think I've ever heard it suggested like that, and that does make complete sense. I do sort of think the second 20 years of your life are spent sorting, sorting out it. the first 20 years of your life. Yeah, you ab- know? absolutely. I just know that, like, I'll never be over that fear of social situations, but I know that I'm now better at it and I know that I don't, you know, like before Soccer Aid, I felt that ill. I visited a tropical disease center just in case I'd picked up anything from Mexico when I did the UNICEF filming out there. And it was just, it's all psychosomatic. You said that you, you perpetuated to your 44, so two years ago. I would agree, and people who know you better than I do would probably agree. You have changed in the last two years. You feel so much softer to be around. You f- you appear more relaxed and, and, and uncomfortable. Why is that? What happened two years ago? I got really ill. I was on tour and I had a really bad back. I had arthritis in the bottom of my back, which I feel all of the time. And then I had a slip disc in the middle of my back and I had a slip disc in my neck. And because of that, I took a spine doctor on tour with me. And before each show, I was having like 15 injections into my back. Then I'd get on stage, do the gig, and then I'd collapse, you know. And because of the medication, because of the injections, because of the stress that I was putting on myself, the result of that was, at the end of it, quite catastrophic the stress and the meds and then the bleeding on the brain for some effing reason and the intensive care and the sickness and the oh my god am i gonna get out of this mess that i put myself through i think it was the sort of greatest hit of desperation In my lifetime, because I have got a magnetic pull towards self-destruction with one thing or another, you know, this particular thing that was uh, like I I had to go and self-destruct to get through the tour, Mm. you know, or else, you know, that I had a problem where I couldn't get a pre-existing insurance with my back. So it was going to cost me 70 million to pull out of it. So I had had to do it. And then... Basically, what happened was, was right, okay, this is a reset, stop everything that makes your energy feel bad. Whatever that might be, protect yourself from lower energies. Also, 
whatever on the outside is making your inside discombobulated, recoil from it as if you were touching a hot flame. And I basically have. I think that we get into trouble when the gap between our interior life and our exterior life gets too big. I think that's where the where the catastrophe lies, when the, the, that internal voice gets trapped somehow. And also it occurred to me as well that the thing that's got 80,000 people there in front of you, and more I know in your case, the magnetic pull that you have on people, the thing that pays the bills is also the thing that can eat you. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm sort of beaming some sort of energy at people mm. and they're beaming it back. And now... I don't know whether this is my ego that thinks this. Sometimes I go to the place where I think I'm empathic. This may or may not be the truth, but it kind of makes my, my, makes my life make sense. Because I'm beaming this energy back and we are senders and receivers of energy, when you get that amount of energy coming back at you, it's like putting too many fingers on a computer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly that. That I think that's a really pr- profound piece of self-knowledge you've just... Because everything's coming towards you because everything's coming from you. And that's, uh, that's hard. But also, I don't think... I mean, how do you deal with that, John? Because maybe you had a, a proper sense of self and you were a grown-up by the time that your fame came to you. Because you deal with massive audiences too. I just think that... Because I got famous when I was 16, it was kind of like I'm looking at a beautiful picture of my daughter now. She's seven, and the beautiful picture's just here on the right. I wouldn't put her in the gym and make her do a 180K barbell lift. I think spiritually and psychically and emotionally, when you place somebody that young in that arena, they're not fully formed and they're fucked yeah. Well, I agree, and I think it's interesting when you when you talk about arriving at things like like I was as as I've said before, thirty five before I started, forty before I left my job, and I've had this this period in my forties and fifties of of moving within the circles of being famous and performing to big audiences, but I also knew what I was given and what I was receiving was an equal balance because you're a showman and so you have a a whole level of energy that's completely different. And and music, I think, is is so much more important to the individual than comedy is. Comedy is like a good night out, whereas music is they come and they listen for the angels, they listen for that song. There's, there's, you've mapped people's life with the songs that you've sung. So they, they're so much more invested in you. But I think the, the, the difference in many respects is age. At 35, I walked on a stage in a comedy club and if I died on my ass, I wasn't that bothered. You know, it was awkward. I wasn't that bothered because I'd had 35 years of life. At 16, that time spent on stage trying to please people was a bigger percentage of the life that I'd had on earth, so there was more invested in it. And because I wouldn't have known who I was going to be as a person, failure would have felt enormous. With you, I can just see that you were swept along in a completely insane environment that's very difficult for anyone to come out of with any any sense of knowledge. Yeah, exactly. But I also, 
I wouldn't want it for my children. They're no. not going to have that. I'd do it all again. I, you know, even the, the toughest parts, you know, the, the fact that I was gifted and granted this piece of luck that could propel me out of the situation that I was in, in Stoke, you know, not elevate me above people, but elevate my, my being in some way. But in that, in that sort of elevation, I, I got crushed. So that being said, I would still do it all again. Yeah. How's your back now, Robbie? Well, the, um, the thing in the middle, the pop disc, that's sort of okay. I, I can't feel that. The one in the neck, that's gone. The arthritis, I'm just going to have that all my life. Well, have you seen this book? I, I just so happened I've got it in my bag. It's called Heal and Back Pain, The Mind-Body Connection. Yeah, I did, yeah. Have I've you, seen that, yeah. Yeah, 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 by John E. Sarno. I'm just reading it now because Manly gets, gets a bit of back pain. I, I do a bit, but the whole premise of that that, that he's saying comes right back to what you're saying. He calls it TMS where you've got tension through your body and it's and your body your mind is under pressure so what it does is it sends pain signals to another part of your body so you focus on that rather than what's going on in your mind and what you're describing the pressure that you're under under tour it seems a perfect example of somebody your your mind using your body to take away the pressure that's on it well, it's got to go somewhere, hasn't it? Yeah, it's got yeah. to. It's got to. to. And, and and this bit that you said where you said what I did is I decided to push away everything that was negative. It seemed like an easy sentence to say, but it's a very hard thing to achieve because you therefore have to identify all of those things. And that's not always easy. It takes time. Well, well, it's it's also not easy because you're addicted to the things that are bad for you. Mm. For example, like with social media... I've totally gone into a very dark hole with Instagram, DMs, comments, fighting people in the comments section, going and finding other people's posts that I can go and fight. You know, like if I'd have found George, John, and if anybody had had a go at you, I'd have been in there battling them. And then, you know, you sort of go to bed with that energy. And, and then before you know it, if you've had a three weeks of that, yes. all yeah. you've been yeah. doing yeah. is fighting these invisible foes and concentrating your energy into a very, very low place. But I, I, I knew this, and then 10 days ago, I've had to come off it. So I, I've given up that as an outside entity that affects and discombobulates my inner well-being. But also, you, 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 you have a relationship with either your wife, who knows the business, knows the world, because we were talking the other day because I was doing Ida's podcast and you were both on it. There seems to be a real... What I said, to, I think I said to you afterwards, you seem so easy together. You laughed a lot. In I appreciated a way, that, yeah. Yeah, in a way that I've not really seen you like that. Even even as you say, your place is in that soccer aid environment, which is the thing that you created to raise money for charity, for UNICEF, and it's all blokes together, it's lads together, it's mates I'd never seen you more relaxed than I saw you on that call. I, I know it's a trite phrase or saying or, you know, but she's my rock. She's the other half of me that makes the whole tick. Our madness dovetails yeah. completely, yes. you know, where I she's neurotic and she's, you know, 
easily anxious and so am I. And when one of us is down, the other one can lift the other one up and vice versa. And she's comedic and she has a, she has British sensibilities for irony and she's kind, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly lucky to have her. I, I just heard something you said earlier, Robbie, because it sounded like a little bit of self-punishment. You said it, how long it had taken you to, that you felt it had taken you a bit of a long time to to realise this. And I, I, it made me think that as human beings, we like patterns. No matter how destructive the patterns are, that's what we like. I had a brief taste of it as a kid. I was a little soap star and Emmerdale as a kid. So... It's that arrested development of, I joined there as an 18-year-old before I knew who I was or how I felt, and I uh, had a a personality imposed on me externally. That would be as nothing to the madness that you were swept up in. And the chances, I think the chances of coming out the other side of that in any way with perspective uh, and, more importantly, love... Uh, is a testament to you and i think that's what you should take from it well thank you and yeah you are right it is sort of um self-flagellation when i say i wish i hadn't taken that long i should get rid of that pattern of speech and i'll I'll just put that i'll put that to the side but it's all relative you know coronation streets 30 years ago were you were you 18 no, when you were I, in? I was in uh, i was in amadale i was in amadale yeah, for, yeah you know okay. the other one yeah the other one the other one the, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, it, yeah. It, but it, it was still you know it was Millions. still uh, massive and the zeitgeist yes. of yeah. you know the water cooler moments so you had a personality imposed upon you it's exactly the same thing yeah. you know i can't say that it's to a lesser or greater degree well, because you're still you in your well, skin my, walking around with yeah. that Sorry, Rob, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, I, I think they mistook me for the character, so I had one dimension to deal in. So, right. I, yeah, so, uh, uh, so I didn't have that much of uh, to disentangle myself from. And also, people do invest in soap characters. Of course they do. That's what's key. The people that comp- uh, are invested. There's something about music and performing music that uh, John and I spoke about this before. There's something about music that is other and more and magical i think what it is is hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. 
Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's like the football team. You know, it's like I've got an army of fans that are all of a certain age now that have grown up with me. And, you know, by and large, they'll be 47-year-old, 48-year-old, 49-year-old women. You know, there's a lot of guys, too, that I'm, I'm blessed that they come on to my gigs and enjoy my music. And I love that. But what I think is where you pick Liverpool, John, and what, what team do you support? Uh, Sheffield Wednesday. OK, you pick Sheffield Wednesday. I think these people picked me yes. to be their football team. That's right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. there's that sort of like, you know, it's like people that don't like me will be the Evertonian towards the Scouser or the Sheffield, the, the Evertonian towards the Liverpool or the Sheffield Wednesday. That That's the sort of visceral response that my being and what I've created inspires with people. I, I, I also think that, it, you know, like there's, if you put Kuros on or if you put on like uh, Blue Water or Davidoff or whatever, and it instantly takes you back to yes. wherever you were when you were putting the aftershave on. So is the same thing with a song. It's evocative. You might not instantly go back to that kitchen or that moment or that emotion, but you'll know you've experienced something subconsciously. You don't You do not do that with jokes, I suppose. No. No, no. It's, no uh, that's yeah. it. Oh, yeah, with jokes, you just go over yeah. Whereas, yeah. yeah. Whereas, whereas, I think you're absolutely right. I think that music is a kind of time travel. Yeah. A kind, yeah. A, a kind of t- a time, a time travel, and and a remembrance of yourself as you were. So, so what I'm saying, I think the emotional investment with music is uh, is very, very profound and deep within us. Which is why you know it's one, of, it's the, one of the last faculties to go with people with Alzheimer's and so on. It's it it means so much to the human psyche. You hold on to it to the last minute. I think that's why people are so passionate about yeah, it too. Absolutely. Like viscerally, viscerally respond to their sort of sensibilities being burdened with listening to something that they think is beneath them too because it's that important to people. It is. Yeah. So, Robbie, your first word took us on one hell of a journey. What's your second word? Ouija. Right, Tony. Well, Explain Ouija. I, w- I think I know what it is. Yeah. Well, first off, I'm gonna. It's a pronunciation thing. So I'd say I don't know if it's a Sheffield thing. Or I'd say Ouija rather than Ouija. But the actual name is compounded for the French "oui" uh, uh, meaning yes, and the German "ja" meaning yes. And it was trademarked as a game in 1891 by an American company. But its history goes back a lot longer than I suspected uh, when I've looked into it. It was around in ancient Greece, ancient India, Rome, medieval Europe. But the first mention we have of it is in China around 1100 AD. I'm sure everybody that's listening knows what an Ouija board is. It's height of its popularity you can trace back through history. And all the dates invariably are around times of war. The First World War, the, uh, the 30s, a Great Depression saw a big rise in it, 1944, and even the Vietnam War, the interest in Ouija rose and fall. But I'd be very interested to know what your connection can, is with Can it, I Robert. just clarify? So the word Ouija yeah. 
Is is because I know Ouija board is yeah, yeah. where things. Is Ouija spiritualism or? Yeah, well, spi- well, spiritualism is a religious movement uh, based on the belief that the dead exist beyond, and that they that they have the ability and the inclination to communicate with us. Now, when Ouija originally uh, started, before somebody painted it and made it a thing that as we recognise it now with its spiritual connotations, it was actually a parlour game where people didn't have that investment in in the spirit world. Michael Faraday looked at it, it's been a source of scientific interest for like 160 years, and the, the consensus is that it's the subconsciousness in a group that's of interest to scientists. It would appear that these boards sold the most when the, the world was in, in fear, Yes. Yeah. And and literally with the Great Depression, depression and fear where people were then turning to these boards for for what? For 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 answers, for Well, it's a response to anxiety and it's a response to anxiety living in the knowledge of your own another's death. It's kind of around the uh, the same impulse that leads us towards religion. You are right it is a response to fear, but it's a response to anxiety and loss, and it takes us to the edge of our knowledge. But is there also a, a desire for control? If you go on a Ouija board and you get information and so on, you, know, you feel you know what you're doing, if you take those times during war or the Great Depression, there's a, such a lack of control. Probably, as people have felt through this COVID crisis and so on, does it need to go, oh, it's okay, I know that this is coming or that's coming, maybe it's that. I mean, why, what made you pick the word? How do, in what context do you understand the word? Let me tell you my story because it's quite a long one. Okay, so picture the scene. 1990, Stoke-on-Trent. I've got in to take that, but take that isn't going to be starting for another three months. So I need to get a job of some description. I got a job selling double glazing door-to-door as a 16-year-old. Turns out I was terrible at it. Anyway, lots of people (laughs) that I knew were also double glazing salesmen. And the rival company, the guy that owned it was a guy called Drew Munro. And Drew was doing really well for himself. And I guess he was like 28 or 29. He, He was doing that well for himself that he had a Lotus. Everybody looked up to Drew. So all of the double glazing salesmen used to go into a pub on a Friday, get drunk, and then we'd do these things that we'd call a mission. Tonight's mission was to go to Church Lawton Hall, ex-nursing home, ex-hospital, ex-psychiatric ward that was derelict, break in and do a Ouija board in it. Oh. Mm. So I have always had a fear of the unknown and a belief in spirits and ghosts. I was terrified. So I drank more than I usually drink. I smoked more weed than I usually smoke. And off we went. We pull up at Church Lawton Hall into the cemetery. Now, the cemetery, I would say, is about four centuries old, full of gravestones perfectly silent because church lawton hall's in the middle of nowhere we all get out of the car through the cemetery over the wall at the back into the forest into a little bit of a clearing around the corner 
And there was this annex of greenhouses. And it was just the twisted skeleton of these greenhouses that was all that was left. And then we peered round the corner and there was Church Lawton Hall on a perfect full moon evening. A light in the glow of the moon was Church Lawton Hall. The pack of lads went around the back of Church Lawton Hall, kicked a window in, and we all jumped in one by one. We get into the main hall in Church Lawton Hall, and we're shining torches on the wall. And no word of a lie, on one side of the wall was a mural of Church Lawton Hall in its former glory. Flower beds, painted, windows, the lot. On the other side of the wall was Church Lawton Hall burnt to the ground. All covering the walls were satanic messages. 666, devil worship stuff, pentagrams. Instantly, if you're in your right mind and not 16-year-old, you'd be like, bye, this is enough. But we didn't because I still bow to peer pressure. But you can imagine a 16-year-old me and the peer pressure of crying and wanting to go home. Drew gets out the Ouija board. Lads, before I carry on with this, this happened. As I'm speaking to you, this happened. Drew said, who's going to do the Ouija board with me? Coco puts his hand up and says, I'll do it. So Coco and Drew do the Ouija board. Is there anybody there? No. We're in a damp room. The ceiling's collapsing. Is there anybody there? Nothing happens. Is there anybody there? After the third time, I just say, hey, why don't we just pack it in? Let's go home. And they go, no, Rob, we're staying. We're going to do this. Fourth time, is there anyone there? And then from the ceiling, I hear gush, 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 like ball bearings hitting the ceiling. I grab hold of Flick that I'm is standing in front of me. It's a bit older than me. So hard the next day, he had bruises all the way down his arms. Now, I'm sort of keeping one eye open, but trying to close them as best as I can. And Drew turns to us all and he says, I've never done this before, but I'm going to ask them to appear to us. No. Yeah. Drew says, please appear to us. In that moment, what looked like a gargoyle floated down from the ceiling. And as it got closer and closer and closer, the gargoyle just became some tarpaulin. You know, something that you'd cover a motorbike to keep it from the damp in the evening. And the tarpaulin just floated to the floor. I've completely gone now. I, I need to be taken to a mental institution. I, I need my mum. I need to jump in bed with my mum and hold her until it's morning. Drew Monroe then goes, please appear to us. On the ceiling above us, we hear footsteps. And we follow the footsteps where we think they're going of the ceiling and then they stop. And then the footsteps start coming down the stairs as we are looking at the hallway, the wall and the hallway. And then the footsteps stop. Drew goes, please appear to us. No word of a lie. Walking through the door was an Edwardian soldier with a bayonet, faceless, and a nurse with a candelabra 
of candles, faceless. And I shout, turn the effing lights off, turn the torches off, turn the effing torches off. Turn the torches off, turn them back on, disappeared. Drew turns to us and he says, lads, I've never seen this before. Let's go. Well, we couldn't get through the window quick enough. We couldn't get through the clearing quick enough. We couldn't run past the greenhouse quick enough. We couldn't run through the forest quick enough. We couldn't run through the cemetery quick enough. We get back to the car park. Drew's got a Lotus. I say, Drew, take me home. You can get me there the quickest. Just as I'm saying this, Egghead looks into the church and on the doorway is the Edwardian soldier and the nurse. And Egghead goes to walk towards him, and I'm shouting, Egghead, don't, Egghead, don't, don't. He said, I aren't effing scared. Egghead, don't. And he walks up to them, and they jump out at him. It's the other two executives from the double glazing company. <laughs> Drew's in on it. What sounded like ball bearings was ball bearings. Uh. They'd been up in the day, drilled a hole in the ceiling, uh. attached some tarpaulin to the... Um, to a fish, oh, a fishing no. line, covered their faces with white socks, oh. gone to a fancy dress place, oh, yeah. <laughs> done the whole thing. Oh, man, I thought this was Robbie Williams become Static Accord. I did this. <laughs> you got us. I genuinely thought, oh, this is Robbie yeah. and his UFOs or uh, something else. Uh, now we're going to yeah. find out about this. Yeah. So wow. it was just Drew being a dickhead. Is that not oh, the best it's ever? The effort. The yeah. effort to go with the, 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 the cruelty. Wow. And how old were you when that happened, Rob? Six, 16? 16. 16. That would uh, get your attention. Six, yeah, but 16. the thing is, though, like, Drew would be 28. So yeah, would, you have been, would you have been capable of that at 28? I think I would have. Yeah, yeah, but oh, at 28, I, I wouldn't be hanging around with a 16-year-old boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you've got to start asking yeah, there's, there's, questions. Yeah, there's where the questions should begin, yeah. Right, Robbie, we've had two brilliant words so far. I've got a, uh, your, th your third word. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation, and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at Amazon.com slash Instant Eraser Foundation. Shame. Shame. Well, I think we know what shame is to most of us, or understand it. Sony is there anything more to illuminate? Well, shame. Shame, shame is, on Drew. Shame on Drew. Yeah, uh, shame is a diminution of honour. It is associated with disgrace, dishonour, insult, loss of esteem, or reputation. Theory of his uses in etymology: all English words that start with th uses start with sk, so it comes from a word which is scamo and there are because your original word uh, Robbie was embarrassment it made me think about the difference between the two words so I had a, a little bit of digging around about the difference and how 
those words are. So shame is focused, it seems, on the entire self because those who become embarrassed apologise for the mistake and then they begin to repair this thing or, or redress the harm done to the presented self, whereas shame does not involve public humiliation where embarrassment does. Uh, therefore, shame can only be experienced, they contend, in private, and embarrassment can never be experienced in private. It's interesting. It's interesting, yeah. Shame can't be fixed. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to. This is this is fascinating. I didn't want to leave without telling you this. So, the, uh, when you look back into the etymology, it's all a little unclear as as, as, the, as they often are. But this goes back to some ancient Indo-European language and the Germanic word for shame, and it's to do with genitals. And the shame, wow. shame, and genitals have always had. There's always been a, an indissolvable union from time immemorial between them two. So reconstructing from private parts to shame looks like the favourite root of it. So it kind of shame is taking away your manhood? No, shame is exposed. It's about being exposed, about your manhood being exposed and questioned and your and, and that's tied in with honour. Yes, I get it. Well, I'll tell you my story. So I've been in a relationship with a very, very powerful entity for 30 years of my life that has actually been in control of the public's perception of my character and my very being. Unfortunately, the monster that is in charge of those energies gaslights incredibly and... Um, the gaslighting of who I am as a person and who I've been represented to be as a person for 30 years has had great detriment on my mental well-being and my mental health. And of course, I'm talking about the press, you know, I, I did hear a quote saying, you know, that if you take away nuance, that's where tyranny begins. So there's there's a deliberate removal of nuance that everybody is receiving millions and millions of people every day about people where the gray bits or the gray areas or what actually happens completely makes sense on mm. mm. are not actually salacious at all in any way, shape or form, just mundane, boring bits of nothingness. But you can just take apps. I mean, look at us three lads with the top off That's suspicious. Instantly, <laughs> two of us are know. in two of us are in solo. It's very <laughs> suspicious. Yeah, but but there you go. How salacious is that? Three people talking on the microphones with their tops off in solo. What were they up to that day? There you go. Casting dispersions on your personality straight away. Anyway, one particular moment. Charlie is about to be born. My son, the second child. We're in. The maternity ward. Ida does something funny, posts it on Instagram. It gets a giggle from the pair of us. I then respond to what she's posted by posting something of my own. It makes us giggle. What happens is we then have five or six little sketches, vignettes of a parody of an awful person. So my wife's screaming out in pain 
as she's trying to give birth to Charlie, we're videoing it and I'm pretending it's all about me. And I'm going, let it go, let it go. You know, it's it's funny. It just caused you to giggle there. You know, mm. that was the imagine if I was this person, how awful that would be. That's where the comedy is and that's where the nuance is, yes. right? Remove that, the comedy and the nuance, and you are that person. And that's how I was presented to the world. And it went viral. They were reporting on it in America. 42 million people had the opinion that I was actually in the birthing suite being that dickhead to my wife. To this day, people still think that's what I was doing. There's a picture of me <laughs> that we posted where Ida's in mock pain and I've got this big cheesy 1970s soap, American soap opera grin, and I posted, don't worry, I've got this. Right? <laughs> She's in mock pain. Yes. I'm pretending to be that dickhead. They take that picture and they put it out that I meant that. And I, on YouTube, there's like five different sketches where if you watch them from the beginning to the end, you completely get what's going on. But I've and since then, every time I put out an album, I will have to answer to being awful to my wife during the pregnancy of my five-year-old boy now. But how did that, because of all the things you've been through, when you talk about shame, you know, because you've been in some dark places and you've also had that thing of intense high and intense low. So so I've, because I, we talk about you and I, the now and the, the, the frame rate you've got as a family and it, and it's, and I, I fully get what you said, this is your rock, because I cannot imagine the level of loneliness it feels when the lights are so bright, get turned off. When you walk off stage and there's a love and you go, oh, it's not an escape to, to, to be yourself. It's suddenly, it feels to me like you, you must be feeling like you just dropped and you've got to build up, which can lead to all the cycle of stuff you've been through. So with that, this is a shame that's been applied to you that's not real. So isn't that an easier level of thing just to flick off and move away? Well, it is now because, you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy. Yeah, yeah. But another thing that I don't think became fully fledged in my personality was an ability to not let that negativity and that kind of shame into my very being. Because I noticed that a lot of people that I talk to about these kind of things, like David Williams, for example... I'll say to him, I'll be looking at my phone, I'll say, you see this comment here? I've just been on her Instagram post. That's her, and that's what she said to me. Can you imagine? She's just yeah, said yeah, that yeah. to me, yeah. and she looks like that. And he said, why are you doing that? I know, why are you, yeah, doing, why that? Are you doing that? Why, why are you doing that? And I said, well, because uh, it's annoyed me. He said, it doesn't annoy me at all. And I'm sure you're the same, John. Yeah, there is a little bit like I remember saying to Melanie, my wife, got off Twitter because she started to engage in it and she used to get up and I said, what are you doing? I said, Twitter is like opening the window every morning to see if you can smell shit. Just if you think there's shit outside, you're not going to open the window. 
you're going to go, there might be shit. But Twitter is, I'm going to find the shit. I'm going to really yeah. sniff it out. And I just I just don't engage. I think there's a there's an element of, it's lovely Instagram can be one of those things where you get positivity back. It's an expression. You have a fan base to service. But there's also that thing where it allows, it allows a fragrance into your world that you don't want. And you've just got to be able to blow it away. Only you've experienced this from your eyes. Only, only if you have been on the receiving end of uh, the Robbie Williams. But my, my, when I think of Robbie, I, I think of energy and fun and love. Thank you. It's yeah, just true. I, um, just, just true. I think yeah, that's what he was laughing at his wife when she yeah, was giving birth. Yeah. Or Drew's, <laughs> or Drew's gullible mate. <laughs> Robbie, we've kept you for ages. This has been brilliant. You came up with three fantastic words in embarrassment, Ouija and Shane. We always ask people for one word they will gladly never hear again. Millennium! <laughs> <laughs> Mate, it's a joy to be with you. Thank you for, for giving us the time. I, I, can't, I can't say any more than I look forward to being semi-naked with you again soon. What a lovely... Hey, listen, if you ever need me to do this again, if you're ever missing a guest and you need somebody to fill in and a part two, I'm... Don't offer. Don't offer. It's a booking. Don't offer. It's don't a booking. Because we'll be on no, you. No, mate, mate, listen. Please do. I've really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm up for part two. And I've got nothing on right now. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lovely thought to leave it on. Cheers, Rob. God bless you. <laughs> Bye. See you, lads. Bye. Well, I tell you what, that went well. I never, th- I never thought <laughs> no, I'd be, I no. never thought I'd be sat topless chatting with you and Robbie Williams I, and getting on so well. I, I, yeah, I don't dream that that might have happened, but it, but it did just happen. And uh, it's one of those, isn't it, John? You see somebody from a distance through the filter of the press and uh, the media, but he was, uh, he surprised me. I think he's funny, he's clever, talented. Yeah, he's a lovely fella. I. Um, I know that it's a mate of yours. I, I think it might end up being a mate of mine if I can stalk him sufficiently. <laughs> no, it was brilliant, Joe. Great. This podcast was brought to you by our partner, Quorn. Super protein, super tasty. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Enhance your listening experience with Wondry Plus. Enjoy ad-free listening, exclusive content, binges, and more. Join Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or on Apple Podcasts.